Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 63 for the first quarter of February 2013. In all great works of entertainment, there comes a point where the producers are low on energy, time, and budget, and they do something called a bottle show. The term comes out because they need no new sets, no guest stars, nothing extra to do it, and all of the material requirements are bottled within what they already have. Many times this is manifest as an episode full of flashbacks with no real plot connecting them in any other way than, say, maybe someone's being brainwashed and you're reliving their memories of apparently seeing themselves as an external camera guy would. With that intro, this episode follows in that noble spirit, and is a clip show, but not quite as lazy as those other folks, and already being a zero-budget production anyway, this clip show is a conglomeration of small topics that are too small for their own show, but nonetheless represent misconceptions, mistakes, half- or non-truths, and conspiracies related to astronomy. And... If you don't like coast-to-coast AM clips, I suggest that you skip this episode. With that disclaimer, let's begin. We're going to start with talking about Earth's moon. No, not lunacy, that's a separate show. But to start with, on December 7th, 2005, authors Christopher Knight and Alan Butler were on Coast to Coast claiming that the moon was entirely artificial. Their conclusion is that human time travelers from the future went back in time and created the moon using black holes because these time travelers realized that the moon was needed for life to exist on Earth. The concept itself falls into the not-even-wrong camp, where there's simply not even a seed of something correct within it to start to debunk the scenario. But there are some parts to dissect, and some of the claims that they make show up in other people's claims and conspiracies as well. First has to do with pendulums during eclipses, um, and it's known, for instance, when the when there is a um, uh, 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 when the sun's light is blocked out by the moon mm-hmm. passing in front of it, because the moon is one four hundredth the size of the sun, but it's exactly one four hundredth of the distance between the two. So um, when we get um, them in, the, them aligned, pendulums go crazy, uh, and no one understands that. This is a claim that I actually first heard made by Mike Barra, then Richard Hoagland, and then this guy. This dates back to the mid-1900s, when a Frenchman who won the Nobel Prize in Economics, note, that's not someone trained in setting up scientific apparatuses, named Maurice Alais, A-L-L-A-I-S. So, again, apologies for pronunciation, but I'll go with Alais for this. He reported in 1954 and then again in 1959, that during a total solar eclipse, he observed a pendulum very slightly changing its motion. The good professor deduced and ascribed this to an ether that everything moves through, but had been disproven a century earlier, or a half a century earlier. Barra and Hoagland use this to say that their hyperdimensional physics is true, while others claim that it proves gravity is wrong. This has actually been tested by other people over the last 59 years. There have been mixed results, but a review of the literature shows that as the experimental controls were tightened, 
and things like temperature and pressure changes caused by being in shade were taken into account, the effect that Elias observed goes away. It's much like Tsai in that respect. The better the experiments are designed to control for known variables, the effect diminishes to pretty much nothing. And the effect was never that pendulums go crazy anyway. Another claim by these gentlemen is that eclipses like ours are unique in the universe. This is a claim often propagated by creationists, though I suppose also by artificial moon folks too, they're just less common than creationists. The idea goes that nowhere else in the solar system, and these guys claim nowhere else in the universe, is there a planet with a moon where the moon just covers the host star during a solar eclipse. The question at this point is, how do you define your terms? Yes, it is true that in the solar system, in our solar system, our moon at this particular epoch in our history can do this, although it doesn't always because it's on an elliptical orbit, so sometimes the moon doesn't completely cover the face of the sun. That's called an annular eclipse. But there are plenty of planet-moon systems where the moon would completely cover the sun as seen from the host planet. It just covers the sun more than is necessary, so it's not an exact fit. The reason that I say that you have to define your terms is that without saying exactly what your definition of exactly covers the sun actually is, you could really claim uniqueness for anything. For example, you could say that Mars was especially created just the way it was because it's the only planet with only two moons, and neither moon can completely cover the sun during an eclipse. So why isn't Mars more special than Earth? Let's say that we find a planet where the moon is on a slightly more circular orbit and more often covers the host star exactly as seen from the planet's surface. Does that mean that it's artificial too? Or does it mean that ours is even more special because sometimes we get a solar eclipse, a total solar eclipse, but sometimes we get an annular eclipse? Yes, it's true that this is an interesting coincidence at this point in time, but without an a priori definition of something interesting and unique, you can point to pretty much any feature that you want and say that it makes us special, therefore God did it, or it's artificial and it was done by aliens. Moving from the moon to the sun, we're going to revisit Greg Braden, subject of episode 17. One item that I left out was the following clip talking about the sun's magnetic field. And this happens every time we go through one of these cycles, where the magnetic fields have declined significantly. Uh, they're weaker now than they have been for the last 2,000 years. Because those fields are weaker, we have more radiant information from the sun, more more heat. The atmosphere heats up. The oceans heat up. And when that happens, the ice on the poles begins to melt, and that's a lot of water. About the only thing correct that Greg Braden stated in there is that Earth's magnetic field is declining, at least for the last century, and probably for at least the last 2,000 years as well. Well, he also did say that if more heat is present on the planet, ice will melt. That's also true. Everything else, though, is wrong. Somehow, Braden thinks that Earth's weaker magnetic field means that, quote-unquote, information from the sun gets to Earth's surface. Let's ignore the idea of information equating with heat and pretend that he just said it means more heat gets to Earth's surface, as he later implied. He's still wrong. 
magnetic fields have absolutely nothing to do with the permittivity of Earth's atmosphere to solar heat. Very close to 100% of the energy from the sun is carried by photons, also known as light. Photons are not blocked by planetary magnetic fields, nor are they blocked nor deflected by any magnetic fields because light is not a charged particle. Light from the sun would hit Earth the exact same way whether we had a magnetic field or not. Because of that, the rest of his statement is wrong. The atmospheric absorption of solar energy doesn't change, nor does the ocean absorption of light. Our declining magnetic field has nothing to do with climate change or global warming. However, our distance from the sun does, just not quite the way that this person, Ken Parsons, thinks. If we were 1% closer to the sun, we would burn to a crisp. If we were 1% further back, we'd, we'd be a frozen it. block of ice. Yep. The exact nature of the habitability zone of the solar system, or where in the solar system an Earth-like planet could be and still support life, is difficult to define because of the numerous complexities of the exact composition of the atmosphere, the amount of water in the oceans, and other things. When I was studying this for a class about five years ago, the general agreed-upon range is that if Earth were magically moved between roughly 5-10% to 10 closer to the sun, or up to about 30-40% to 40 farther from the sun, it would still be habitable. In other words, still between Venus and Mars, but still fairly a large amount of leeway. On the Wikipedia page that I'm linking to in the show notes, the most recent estimate listed is from a 1993 paper which looks to be what I was using five years ago. Castings et al., 1993, says that Earth could be between 95% and 137% of its current distance from the sun and still be habitable. And, literally, just this week as I'm recording this, a newer estimate came out that still had the habitability zone starting at about 95% of our current distance, but then extending to a little bit past Mars orbit, around 1.6 times the Earth-Sun distance. There are earlier estimates by people in the late 1960s and early 1970s, and late 1970s, who put the range as much narrower, but this is really a field where you must look at the most recent material and give that more weight than the older estimates. Why? Because computers dramatically change what we know about this. You can do the basic math and estimate what the carbon cycle will do if Earth were at Venus location, but only with computers can you really start to model how the carbon cycle will feed back into the water cycle, the role of volcanism and atmospheric gases being both added to or taken away from the solar wind stripping and these other factors. Faster computers and better models will change these, and, as a result, the older estimates of just a few percent difference and we'd all be dead are less likely to be correct. That said, Ken Parsons has no excuse. He made that statement in 2004, over 10 years after the earlier study. I'd say it's typical for a creationist such as him, but it's also typical for pseudoscientists to take the few, especially early studies that support their claim, and ignore all of the others that don't. With this particular claim, and I hear it fairly often, not just by creationists, but also by other people who feel that they need to argue that Earth is special for their own pet idea. Brooks Agnew, a person I've mentioned before in context with the Hollow Earth and Comet Elenin, 
is one of those people. Agnew claims that the tolerance is only 50,000 miles, which isn't 1% of Earth's distance from the Sun, it's only a tolerance of 0.05%. This in itself is interesting. Why? Because Earth's farthest distance from the Sun is called its aphelion, which is about 152,098,232 kilometers, or 94,509,460 miles. Earth's closest distance to the Sun is called its perihelion, which is about 147,098,290 kilometers, or about 91,402,640 miles. These are very easy numbers to look up, and I don't expect you to actually have paid attention as I read them off. Interesting for both Brooks' claim of the 0.05% closer or farther when we'd burn up or freeze, or Parsons' claim that it's only a 1% tolerance before we'd burn up or freeze, aphelion and perihelion represent a plus or minus 1.7% range in distance. In other words, we get between about 98% of an astronomical unit close to the Sun and about 101% of an astronomical unit close to the Sun. Yeah, it's nearly twice as much as Ken Parsons says is possible before we die, and it's over 33 times as much as Agnew says is possible before we die, just from Earth's current orbit. I don't know about you, but I generally don't die every winter or every summer. So much for that idea. Another claim of many by Brooks Agnew has to do with the moon's reflectivity. The moon, being made of aluminum and, and uh, titanium, has a reflectivity. Uh, the side that faces us is the side that faces us all the time. And it's got a, a, a dusting, as it were, of iron dust, which makes it sort of dark, a little darker than it would normally be if it was just aluminum. On a full moon in the middle of New Mexico, you could just about see your hand in front of your face in the middle of the night. It lights up the highway quite well. But if the other side of the moon faced us, the smoother side, the side without the huge craters on it, the side without the iron dusting on it, it would be 60 times brighter. You would need sunglasses at a full moon on the Earth. It would be like another sun. It would be like a huge flash, a flashlight, huh? Yes. The, re the sun would reflect so much off the surface of the moon that there wouldn't be any night. This is another case where there's honestly not much in there that's correct. The very first sentence is that the moon is made of aluminum and titanium. That's like saying that Earth is made up of potassium and aluminum. By weight, Earth is primarily composed of iron at 32.1%, oxygen at 30.1%, and silicon, or silicone, if anyone gets that reference, please let me know, at 15.1%. By number of atoms, Earth is mostly oxygen, then silicon, then potassium, then calcium, and then iron. The moon is similar, with the most abundant element by number being oxygen then silicon, then magnesium, with potassium and calcium thrown in. So how does Agnew get this idea that it's made of aluminum and titanium? I'm guessing that it's because of the crust of the moon. The brighter material, as opposed to the volcanic floodplains which look darker, is primarily made of anorthosite, or anorthositic rock. Anorthosite is a very large group of rocks or minerals 
defined as being mostly plagioclase feldspar, which has a high content of the element anorthite. Of the various compositions of plagioclase, the predominant element that would be considered a metal by a layperson if they see the chemical signature is aluminum, although it also has silicon and oxygen in it. My guess is that he saw that the highland material of the moon, the lunar crust, was made of a anorthosite that has a high amount of aluminum in it, and that's why he says that the moon is made up of aluminum. As for the titanium part, the lunar volcanic rocks, the darker ones, are divided into a few groups, and one of those groups has a relatively large amount of titanium. Again, it's not the primary element in terms of molecules and minerals that make up the rock, but it's a metal, and it may stand out to someone if they see it listed as the bulk composition. So the moon is not primarily made of aluminum titanium. In fact, it's depleted in aluminum relative to Earth. But those elements are present in many of the rocks that make up the surface today. The third sentence, that the moon has an iron dust that makes it sort of dark, but only on the side that faces us, is a claim that I can't figure out the origin of. It's wrong, and I'm not even sure how we got to that claim as opposed to me being able to work back the aluminum-titanium part. The next sentence, that full moons are bright, is true, although it's a relative scale. It's nowhere near as bright as the sun, although it's bright enough to read by, just as the faint light from my old-school cellular telephonic device is bright enough to read by. The moon's surface reflects about 12% of the light that reaches it on average, meaning that some parts are a little brighter, some parts are a little darker, but that also means that it's only one-third as reflective as Earth, on average. This means that Agnew's next statement, that the moon would be about 60 times brighter if the other side faced us, is not only wrong, it's impossible. It's wrong because it's just about as bright as the side that faces us already. Because it doesn't have many of the darker lava floodplains as the current near side, it would be slightly brighter on average overall, but you wouldn't really notice the difference. It's not even going to be brighter by a factor of 2, let alone a factor of 60. The reason that it can't be a factor of 60 times brighter is that 60 times 12% is 720%. You can't reflect over 7 times as much light as you receive. I feel kind of weird having to say that, but apparently some people don't realize it. Jumping the solar system and moving outwards, this next clip is from Jeffrey Grupp, who thinks that deep feelings inside of you can alter reality in ways that you want it to. He took a bit of time to discuss why plate tectonics is wrong and extrasolar planets don't exist because they're hard to measure. George, extrasolar planets, that now I mean there's probably some extrasolar planets that are being discovered, but this is another area where it's really, if you just look into it a little bit, it's it's really shocking <laughs> that this science exists in the, the careless way that it does, on the one hand. And second, the mass media will just report, they'll say, you know, plant, Jupiter-like planet was found around some star, and then, you know, there's a report on it, and then everybody believes it. But if you just look into the story just a tiny bit, a number of things will happen. You'll find out that their means for determining a planet, they never actually see a planet, okay? What they do is they'll 
measure tiny little fluctuations of various sorts uh, in a star and then theoretically determine what kind of planet they think must be circling the star according to you know whatever kind of variation in the star that they think that they're seeing. And what you find out is the, the measurements are unbelievably difficult to figure out, to even find out if there are these fluctuations. It sometimes takes supercomputers and months and months to figure it out. Then finally they say, okay, we think we have it. And then the media goes crazy and say, yes, they did get it. They discovered a planet. And then often, very many times, George, they'll come out like six months later in a scientific journal. They'll say, well, we thought we found a planet, but now we're actually recounting that. We actually didn't find one. And the media won't report on that. I mean, this kind of trend has happens over and over and over with extrasolar planets. Now, probably they are discovering some, I'm not saying every case, but it's just, uh, you know, the extrasolar, um, you know, the planets going around other stars, that is, uh, is a very, very careless science. The first demonstrably wrong statement is that exoplanets are not ever directly imaged. This is wrong. It was true maybe a decade ago, but not anymore, as there are a handful of cases where exoplanets have been directly imaged directly observed around their host star. And this guy said this about a year and a half ago. The next implication, if not outright statement, is that because these measurements are hard to make, they're questionable and maybe wrong. A statement like this shows that he has absolutely no concept of how the scientific observation process actually works. A good analogy is that it's like saying it's hard to precisely measure the passage of time to the nanosecond level. Therefore, laser ranging or laser range finding, which is using the time it takes for light from a laser to bounce off an object and return to the device, it can't be done. That completely ignores the fact that the technology and methods improve, and we get better at it, and errors decrease, and very precise results can be had and laser ranging is now used by most surveyors with accuracies of up to a few millimeters. This corresponds to measurements at the picosecond level in terms of time. Most of the laser range finding devices that you can get, in fact, you know, one that you can buy for about 20 bucks, is accurate to the meter level, or yard level, which corresponds to accuracies and timing at roughly the nanosecond, or 10 nanosecond level. You can probably see where this is going. My point is that all because the measurement is hard, and that it may take a lot of time to sift through the data, that doesn't mean it can't be done, or that it's impossible. The next claim, that announcements are made and then retracted, but those retractions are kept quiet in the mainstream literature or the mainstream media, makes it sound like this happens all the time. It doesn't. He's wrong. Of the literally over 1,000 exoplanets that have been discovered as of the end of about 2012, much, much less than 10% have ever been retracted, and most retractions came very early on in exoplanet research, around the turn of the millennium, about 10 years ago. To wrap up this episode, I'm going to go back to the guys who I started out with. In this clip, Christopher Knight discusses why he thinks his idea of time-traveling humans building the moon with black holes is valid. We, we took um, our books when they, when they first came out, and we sent them to a whole series of, of leading scientists and begged and pleaded with these people to get back to us and tell us where we had gone wrong. In other words, where were our numbers wrong? And um, the reaction has been absolutely nothing. And, and we feel sure that if somebody could take our book to pieces and say look, you've invented this, or look, you've massaged this, or you've made this, 
that somebody would have done so by now. And, and the fact is that our numbers are sound. And if the numbers are sound, then the strangeness of the moon is sound. And uh, we need some explanation. As the puzzler for this episode, what logical fallacy or fallacies best sum up that statement? Here's what actually probably happened, and I'm speaking from personal experience here. I've gotten innumerable emails from people peddling their own crazy ideas. Once, I even got a full-color, several hundred-page-long softback book that claimed to prove that Saturn's rings are a result of ether particle dynamics and galaxy rotation or something like that. Actually, several of us who were working on Saturn's ring dynamics at the time got the book. It had lots of pictures, a huge number of equations, lots of text. It looked like a fancy schmancy textbook. And yet it was at our crap. They all ask us to review it or to tell them where they went wrong or some other such thing. We never respond. In my case, I don't respond for two reasons. The first is that I don't have the time to take out of my day to deal with their stuff. The second follows on that. I don't want to acknowledge that they sent me something because if I respond, I'm afraid that it would start a back and forth that would waste even more of my time. That's what very, very likely happened in this case. I can guarantee you that if I got an unsolicited book in the mail where the premise was that time-traveling people from the future created the moon in the past by making black holes to draw material off of Earth to make the moon and then turn the black holes off, I would roll my eyes and use the book as a doorstop. Astronomy Cast addressed this once, but unfortunately I can't find the episode. It might have been during an interview on The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Anyway, the reason for what may seem like such a callous response, or lack of response, is that these people don't play by the same rules as everyone else. They usually expect to be able to take a bunch of disparate ideas, some may be perfectly valid, some completely wrong, and use them to support a completely out-there claim. And they expect it to be accepted, or they expect us to take weeks of time to quote-unquote prove them wrong. What they have to do if they want attention is to play by the same rules as the rest of us. They have to show that not only is their idea valid by using real and validated information, not like the pendulum going crazy during a solar eclipse, but they also have to show how it fits all of the other data that is explained by the mainstream idea. In this case, they have to look at the lines of evidence that support the moon being formed by the giant impact event and show how all of the evidence used to support that model also supports theirs. They have to show that their model works with the other accepted physics that they aren't trying to overturn. Like how you can just shut off a black hole, or how material drawn off of Earth goes into orbit and forms a moon as opposed to getting eaten up by the black hole and go through the peer review process. Not publish a book, send it unsolicited to some people, and when they don't respond, claim that their silence means that you're right. There is no new news this episode, no Q&A, and no feedback either. For the puzzler, 
where each episode I attempt to attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment, the puzzler for the last episode, actually, if we go back four episodes and three episodes, the Face on Mars stuff, the puzzler was to send in your favorite or your best example of planetary pareidolia. I left it open for a month, but I've only received three entries. I've posted them in the show notes for this episode. Thanks to Graham D., Derek B., and Arnold R. for participating. This episode with the clip show, if you want the puzzler, go back to the 24-minute mark. Try to figure out the answer and send it into puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next episode. And that episode will be either about 2012ers backpedaling or quantum mechanical nonsense. So if you have ideas for the puzzler for either of those topics, please send it in. An announcement for a very distant event is for anyone in the greater Atlanta, Georgia, USA area. I should be giving a presentation as part of the TELUS Science Museum's monthly lecture series on Friday, September 6th. Yes, that's about eight months away. And the tentative title is How Your Camera Lies to You. It will be based off of my podcast episodes on image processing, the lunar ziggurat, the face on Mars, UFOs, and various other miscellany. Also, don't forget that you can find me online at podcast.sjrdesign.net, on Facebook under Exposing Pseudoastronomy, or me personally on Twitter as Dr. That's D-R Astro Stew, or the podcast on Twitter as Pseudo Astro. That wraps up this topic for the 63rd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use 1, the feedback form on the website, 2, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, 3, leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, 4, leave a comment on my blog post for this episode, 5, leave a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast, or 6, send me a tweet at pseudoastro. I do read every message, I'm almost caught up, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, then tell your friends and family and two random people that you'll never meet in real life. Thank you.